0: Heavenly Father, thank you for an amazing day. Thank you for the refreshing rain that we've already had. Father, thank you that we can be here and and really wrestle with the truth. And today, especially about the resurrection, I just ask you, Father, that you would give us insight and, and help every single one of us to understand and glean these principles that we need to learn so that we can become better at defending this most reasonable faith we have in Jesus. So would you guide us in spirit, speak to our hearts and greatly encourage us, Lord, with the truth we're going to learn today in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to open your books um, to chapter one. You know, before we actually before we do that, um, the syllabus says that we are to have. Dan, you have a syllabus, right? Yes. I'm sorry, the other Danny. Here, Mr. Danny, you have a syllabus, right? Yes, I have it. Oh. Okay, there we go. He's more high-tech than me. Remember, next week, Chapter 3. Cold Case Christianity, Chapter 3. That's what's due, okay? All right, I'm going to paint a scenario for you guys. I'm not going to uh, put a lot of weight behind this. It is just for illustration purposes. But I want us to talk about presuppositions. Last week we talked about presuppositions. The week before that, a little bit about presuppositions. This week, we're going to start off our time together talking about presuppositions. But before I give you an illustration of this, someone tell me what a presupposition is. What is a presupposition? Class, help me! You can do this. Hello? Want to give it a shot? Go for it. Okay. All right. Um, it doesn't have to be a theory, though we could characterize it as a theory. It basically, that was a good answer, by the way, it's basically a bias. It is the lens through which you see life events, the way you interpret life. When we look at this evidence that we're going to be looking at this semester and next semester, every single person has presuppositions we have presuppositions now here is the deal though even though we have presuppositions we can actually once we have these presuppositions test our presuppositions for example I'm one of my presuppositions is that there is a God because there is a God and how I define God I believe in a thing called logic. If you do not believe in God, you have no basis on which to stand to say logic is a real thing. You have to assume it. Okay? Now, once I grasp the principles... So, in The Atheist... I don't know if you've ever heard this before. If you've not... Um, Jason, Dr. Jason Lyles' book, uh, Ultimate Truth, excellent book that deals with this. But all atheists... In order to be an atheist and put any evidence on the table for atheism and anything they do in life, they have to stand on my Christian worldview that believes in a God, because if you don't do that, you have no reason to believe in laws of physics or logic. We assume that this universe is orderly. Okay, we assume this. Now, just because so far things have been somewhat ordered, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are. So, logic, the law of non-contradiction, okay, for example, we learned uh, two basic uh, principles for logic last time we met, but logic is not something that the a non, an atheist can... Um, that an atheist can stand on without assuming that there is a God because he has to assume this universe is ordered. And we don't know that. That has to be proven. But logic is a fundamental principle. You can't prove logic. It just is. So the atheist can't prove his presupposition of logic. Now, I don't know if you follow that or not. But a presupposition, the presupposition... That the atheist or agnostic or skeptic holds, his presupposition is what the book calls, sorry, let me silence my phone, there we go, is called scientific naturalism or scientific materialism. Okay, write that down, you want to make sure you understand this. Scientific naturalism or scientific... He calls it philosophical naturalism. Regardless, it's naturalism or materialism. But scientific naturalism or scientific materialism says that the only thing that exists is something that is material, matter, physical. It is, therefore, it excludes anything supernatural. Supernatural okay or the term we used two weeks ago was metaphysical okay so anything that i cannot put under a microscope that i can't scientifically observe and interpret the data and come to a conclusion anything outside of that cannot exist so how did this universe come into being this atheist has to say I, have n- I don't know, but I have some ideas that are worth considering. But all of their ideas have no substance to them. They truly have no substance to them. They can't figure it out, but they're giving it their best shot. And so this is what they say. We now, just because we don't know, there is a gap in our knowledge, and you can't fill that gap of knowledge with God. Just because we can't understand it scientifically, just because we can't understand how uh, um, a certain chemicals that the earth started with, just because we don't know how it mutated and formed and transitioned into a single cell going from non-life to, non- to life, just because we don't understand that gap in our knowledge doesn't mean that science will not one day discover the answer okay so we use the term god of the gaps now in all fairness just speak there is an element of truth in this before uh louis pasteur came around most people believed that infections were things like demons and they viewed them very superstitiously okay um but then louis pasteur said no Science now brings us to conclusion it's caused by germs. That's why you're sick. Okay, that, that's fair. Science did explain that. But you're going to see that there is a difference between science doesn't know today and science can never know. The origin of the universe is one of those because it defies all logic and scientific principles that we have it defies this evolution from non-life to life that defies what we know about science the fact or the theory that there are many many universes what they call the multiverse that defies scientific reason there is zero evidence for this and yet those who believe in evolution are turning to this and that allows them to believe in an infinite number of random choices that will eventually produce what we have today. So uh, we're not probably not going to pursue that idea because that gets into evolution and such, and our class really isn't going to get into that. But presuppositions, the presupposition of the atheist closes the door to anything supernatural. Let me read a, um, a section here. Karl Barth. Um Carl Bart is I'm sorry, what page 28. There we go. Carl Carl Bart. Wow. Um Earl excuse me, Bart Ehrman. Wow. I don't know where my mind is today. Bart Ehrman was a Princeton seminary student, believed in the inerrancy of scripture. A conservative guy came across a passage in mark that i'm not going to get into and he said wait a second this is this is wrong here it should be the high priest abimelech not ahimelech so this is the bible has an error here and if the bible hasn't he started looking for the bible has a couple of these errors how do we explain this so his conclusion was the bible was wrong then he made another conclusion that there actually is no God, and, but he teaches religion at, what is it, the University of North Carolina in Raleigh-Durham. Excuse me, Chapel Hill. Wow. So that's where this guy's coming from. He argues, he does debates. You can actually see him debating uh, people on online. But this is what he says. The bottom line, I think, Is one we haven't even talked about which is whether there can be such a thing as historical evidence for a miracle and I think the answer is a clear no and I think virtually all historians agree with me on that he continues on it's invoking something outside of our natural experience to explain what happened in the past how do you explain feeding of the 5,000. How do you explain Jesus' resurrection from the dead? That is outside of our ability to test. It's outside of nature. It is, We're calling upon the supernatural to explain Jesus' resurrection, to explain the feeding of the 5,000, to explain Lazarus' resurrection. And since those things can't happen, he says that's his presupposition because he's a scientific materialist. Because of this, that can't happen. And therefore, you cannot test miracles in the past you, because you must invoke the supernatural. But no such thing exists. Do you see the bias in this? You are assuming that there's no such thing as the supernatural. The only thing that exists is what we can see, feel, hear, taste, touch. I, sorry. And consequently... Because that's what science deals with? You theologians over there? Yeah. You, you, you have faith, we have reason and science. But today, I want us to realize that that is completely inaccurate in characterizing or understanding what faith is and what reason does. Reason, I, I'm going to word it this way. We have a reasonable faith. If you were to title this class lecture, it is going to be it, you would entitle it A Reasonable Faith. My faith is not a blind faith. I don't believe in God just because I think it's a cool thing to do. Just because there's a few things in life I just don't understand, so I'm going to invoke God as my to help me understand it. I'm going to put God in there. No, because there is a lot of evidence for the existence of God a lot of evidence, as we're going to see in a minute, for the resurrection of Jesus. And so, based on that evidence, I am going to trust in this person called Jesus. I'm going to trust that the Gospels that talk about him are reliable and that what I'm reading is actually true, which is what we're going to spend a lot of our class time in the today and, and in, this, uh, in, this, in this class. But... I am now going to believe in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? What are you looking for? Oh, purse. Nope. Not up here. Sorry. All right. So that here, here's what I want to do. I want you to imagine you have come across... you. You are the detective and you come across... You've been called to a house, and in the kitchen, there is a woman lying dead on her back with a bullet hole in her chest. The door is locked. They do a test, and they discover that, well, yeah, okay, let me back up. There is no forcible entry anywhere in the house. The bullet, by doing tests, was shot not at an angle, but straight about 15 to 20 feet away. So it was not self-inflicted. She is not married. She does not have someone living with her. She has very few friends. The question then is, How do we decide on what happened here? Did she die, number one, accidentally? No, it was not an accidental death. She didn't bump into a trigger of a gun and she got shot. So it's not accidental. Was it a a suicide? No, because they discovered the bullet was shot from 20 feet away. And I doubt she had any kind of mechanism to pull the trigger have it shot. The gun would have still been there and it, it wasn't. No gun was found. So it was not a suicide. Um, no. Mm-mm. It, she didn't die of old age or anything like that. This is a homicide. Somebody killed her. With no forcible entry, with no, with the doors locked, what are some of your assumptions? Reasonable inferences. Remember, that's what chapter two is about. Reasonable inferences. Go ahead. Maybe he saw. Maybe the killer saw her through a window and shot her. Okay, that would have busted the glass, and there's no glass broken. It could have been like a a repairman or something, because she would have let them in to repair her appliances. But the door was locked. And she did not lock it. I can lock it so if I walk out, I lock it first and then I close the door and keep locked. Okay, but this was dead bolted. Was the key taken? it was, so was dead bolted from the inside. Yes. What about the windows? There's a secret passageway? Yeah, wait. Oh, they may have to look for a secret okay, passageway, um, okay? You because if it was, it could have been Santa and came down the chimney. Oh, yes. <laughs> 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 we would make great detectives. Yes. Mm. Okay, <laughs> so you are assuming the reality of Santa Claus, who can fit through really narrow passages. Further study the discovers the ground she ground didn't ground even ground have a chimney. <laughs> Bummer. No, no, the Tim Allen movie, one appears. Okay, go ahead and ask me some more questions. Okay, so they, they talked with her closest friend from work. She said she was a loner, that even she did not have a copy of her key. And she told her many times, I'm so sorry that I'm not giving you a copy of my key. So. What about family? Like, in the yeah, she's she's not very. She's not Because that. That. Got a lot of sisters. Yeah, he never said that she didn't Okay, so here's what they did. They found her phone in her pocket, and she is amazingly organized, and every number in there has a name. Not too many names, unfortunately. But one number that she had called the day before with no name, just the number. They called that name. They, excuse me, they called that number, and they got the voicemail. Hey, this is Jimmy Dean. Leave a message. Boom. The detectives knew right away. This is this is suspicious because they knew Jimmy Dean, and he had a rap sheet a mile long, and had been involved in uh, gangs, and had been a murder suspect though had never been put in jail for it. He had done some time though for robberies and such. So now we have a suspect, but Jimmy Dean has an alibi and he confirms it with three other people. So now what do we do? They are friends, but they are people nevertheless. Do they have any previous records? No, those three do not actually. How did she get, okay, okay, fair enough question. So as they were continuing their investigation, they found in her study her calendar, and on her calendar was the name of a doctor that she saw every week. They called the doctor, and the doctor was a psychologist, and our victim had multiple personality disorder. Now, (laughs) any further questions? I I very very does her her she have any pets? Does she have any pets? So you're disorder, you know? a, a pet no dog but you Child. like only it, movies probably. multiple personality. Multiple personality disorder is someone who goes who learns to cope with reality or different situations by assuming a different personality so they can deal with it or cope with it better it is a recorded thing um it is real i would perhaps suggest that some of it can be explained through demonization but i'm not going to say categorically that they all are because i would venture to say that some of it genuinely is a dissociative disorder, okay? They dissociate themselves from the real person of who they are. They discover her journal, and the journal has, expresses these personalities, and in actual, there's three personalities, and they all hate one another, and given the opportunity, would love to see them die. Okay, so any... Further questions? Because well, I'm going to wrap this up in just feet in feet. a minute. I'm sorry. How is he shot okay. So go ahead. The psychologist was a psycho who she could get her wish, and so he killed her, took her key, locked the door. Yeah, but how do you, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't to <laughs> her Took her key. Took her key. She said. He said, took her key. We have a devil on our door, Okay. This is a possibility, so they checked out Jimmy Dean's alibis and scrutinized them further and realized that there were certain holes in their testimony and that one or all three were lying. As they discovered further, Jimmy Dean could have been there because his alibi is now very weak, and he probably lied. So they assume that Jimmy Dean had been called and that as our victim had assumed one of her personalities had asked to come, described the person that he was to kill and Jimmy Dean killed her. That's their assumption. So they're gathering everything and I'm going to wrap it up with this. They're gathering everything, all of her belongings and they're going to do an estate sale and they come to her computer and her computer has a cam, a webcam on it. And they decide to check the webcam. And apparently the webcam was on the entire time. And here's what happened. Someone, a creature, suddenly appeared in the middle of the room, shot her, and then disappeared. Now let me ask you this. Why didn't any of you think of that? Stranger. how many of you are really disappointed right now (laughs) okay but why didn't you think of an alien suddenly appearing and shooting her why didn't you (laughs) wait 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 okay hang on a second why is okay wait wait wait, hang on why isn't it Some people would suggest we have, but go ahead. You're the one who's telling the story, and you're not the kind of science fiction (laughs) kind of person, so I was not expecting that. Okay, all right. All right. May I also suggest that all of the evidence, scientific evidence, for life being able to exist on Earth leads us to the conclusion that life on any planet is so incredibly rare... That it's next to impossible that the earth is so fine-tuned with all of its cycles the Krebs cycle and so on with how near it is to the Sun the type of star that we have um, the slant of the earth the fact that we have a moon that creates tides and cleanses our oceans all of these things that would be necessary for a clean water supply life on the earth is so finely tuned they call it the anthropic principle That many scientists believe that it is that as hard as you try to find alien life, you will never find it. Will not find it. I'm mentioning this to you because you entered into this with a bias. No one would have thought of an alien. It, you would all, you, as soon as I mentioned it, how many of you felt that I was unfair to conclude it that way? Come on. <laughs> yeah, that's I not fair. That you Santa Claus but incident an alien. Was yeah? alien, You said human, she even. was shot. That by, is true, okay. You said she was shot by a bullet, not a phaser. Uh, uh, I don't think so. Okay. Or a black Well, it was a gun. I mean, yeah, you never told me. Right. Where would an alien but get a dog? gun? So okay, if... So I'm going to continue to on right now. That is, is, hang on. All of us. And by the way, I am not trying to in any way equate the evidence for the alien doing it. And we could still go further and maybe we could disprove that webcam. Okay. All right. But that I'm not trying to equate that with the Christian trying to prove the existence of God. So don't try and make that connection. I am only saying this to say... We come into everything with presuppositions. We come into everything with a bias, okay? But here's the beauty of it. Even though my bias is there is a God, and therefore I can trust logic, I can even trust science because science is predicated upon logic and consistency, okay? Every time I do electrolysis, I am going to be able to have two chemicals, hydrogen and oxygen. That will happen every single time. It's consistent. I can test the oxygen. I can test the hydrogen. Okay? Science must be... Those type of experiments, the empirical method must be consistent. All right? Apart from the belief in God, I'm suggesting to you, you should not be able to do this. You, sh- you have to assume all of this. The reliability of science, logic, etc. Now, I can, however, once I establish that, I can go back and I can not prove the existence of God, but I can mount the evidence for God so that I can make a very logical inference. And this is what chapter 2 is about. Okay, so The atheist can't do that. The atheist has the presuppositions, but his presuppositions are based upon Christianity. Okay, The assumption there's a God. So he can trust his five senses. He can trust logic. He can trust science, etc., etc. So, as a Christian, though, I can now go back and I can substantiate why I believe there's a God. And once I believe that there is a God, we can go through and believing in miracles. We can go. Through, we can believe in why the Gospels are reliable, which is what we're going to do in a very like an overview today, and so on. Okay. So again. We all have presuppositions, but the beauty of the Christian presupposition is this. I can now go back and test my presupposition, and the skeptic and atheist cannot. Okay. Now, we're going to then look at chapter 2, and he uses this concept of abductive reasoning. Can anyone take a stab at what abductive reasoning is? We've heard of inductive reasoning and deductive reasoning. But he now uses this term, abductive reasoning. What is abductive reasoning? Here, now, is the beauty of underlining in your books. Because you will have highlighted or underlined abductive reasoning with its definition. It is chapter two, yep. abductive reasoning. Okay, referring to the most reasonable explanation. Okay. There we go. You observe the evidence, you make inferences, and you make the How did you put it again, Daniel? Referring to the most reasonable explanation. Okay. The most reasonable explanation. Turn to page page 41. And I want you to highlight this or write it down in your notes. There are five things that he says about truth. Now, here's why we're going to go through this. Because the atheist... Um, and, and by the... Well, let me not get into that. The atheist will say that these rules of truth will apply to everything but Christianity. Apply to everything but the, the reality of God. It will apply to everything but the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because those are miracles. And as soon as something falls into the category of the supernatural, sorry, these principles don't apply anymore. There is no reason why they shouldn't. Absolutely none, except a bias that the supernatural cannot exist. All right. So what are these five principles of truth? Truth must be feasible. Truth must be feasible. That is, that it is, this truth is possible. The conclusion that you come to, that -hmm. conclusion is possible. But because it's possible, doesn't mean it's reasonable. So let's go to number two. Truth will usually be straightforward. This concept of simplicity. It's not going to be... It's not going to be the most complex. If you've ever heard of Occam's razor, it is usually the most simple explanation. Okay. Number three, it should be exhaustive. In other words, it will help explain all the evidence. As we go into the resurrection, that is our goal. We want to be able to explain the evidence. Number four, it must be logical. It makes sense. You would step back and you would say, of course, and number five, truth will be superior. It your conclusion, the truth should be the best explanation possible. And as a matter of fact, not just the best but the best by far. so let's let's jump in. We've got twenty minutes. Let's jump into the resurrection. Now, obviously, there's an entire actually a couple of chapters. Um, between chapters 10 and 14, or 11 and 14, and he gets into this stuff in more depth. So, this is just an overview. All right. But there are four truths, four, excuse me, four evidences, four facts, what he calls minimal facts, okay, that both the friends of Christianity and the foes of Christianity would agree on. If you're talking with an atheist, he would agree on these four facts, okay? Now, that's fair, because as you're talking to a skeptic, what's our common ground? We're going to talk about the resurrection. Did it happen or did it not? Is it something that's not testable and it is just something we're going to trust by faith, or is it something that we can prove never happened? Now, before I was 20 years old and went through my crisis of faith, I would say, when I first heard about this, I was like, what do you mean prove the resurrection? I just accept it by faith. But as we go through this, and just a little bit today, much more so in the future, we're going to realize that great men, scholarly men, set out to disprove the resurrection, and they ended up becoming Christians. Now, Lee Strobel, a legal journalist who wrote The Case for Christ, The Case for a Creator, case for Case for Faith, and so on, he was one of those guys. How many of you have ever seen this movie, The Case for Christ? Okay, personal testimony. Excellent, excellent movie. I loved it. Uh, they actually did a great job of, of uh, acting and script writing. So, but at least trouble is just one of them. There has been many, many people. Now, the four facts, what he calls minimal facts. These are the facts that we can all agree on. When a detective walks into a room The fact number one is this woman is dead. Her heart is not beating. It's not that she's in a coma. She is dead. She has a bullet in her wound. She has a bullet in her chest. She's lying face down, so she got knocked backwards from the bullet wound. It is not self-inflicted. It was done 20 feet away, and there was no forcible entry, so this person had to have been let in or had a key. Those would be the four minimal facts that we could start with with the story that I gave you. Daniel? You said she was lying face down. She was, she was laying on her back. Yeah. Um, if I said face down, I don't think I did, but if I did, I, I misspoke. Yeah. Now, the four minimal facts that we can agree on, everybody... Christians and skeptics. Now, by skeptics, I'm going to include Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists in that group, non-Christians. Okay, So, Christians and non-Christians would all agree on these four facts. Number one, Jesus, right here on page 43, Jesus died on the cross and was buried. Now, some would say he was buried like the poor in a shallow grave and the dogs ate him. Okay? Um, that, That has some problems. But at least... He died on a cross and was buried. Number two, Jesus' tomb was empty and no one ever produced his body. We all agree on that. Jesus' disciples believed that they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. They believed that they did. And number four, Jesus' disciples were transformed following their alleged resurrection observations. Any questions about these four stated facts? We now need to explain them. So the first theory that people propose is that the disciples were wrong about Jesus' death. Now, there are several things that would contradict this. However, if they were mistaken about his death, that he didn't really die, then they call this the swoon theory. Then maybe if Jesus didn't die... Maybe the coolness of the tomb revived him. He came to, and he was able to present himself to the disciples as being alive. And they saw his wounds. Wow! But you were dead. No, I'm alive now. Start a cult with my name on the in it, you know, something like this. And they call that the swoon theory. There's a couple of problems with that. Number one, Jesus. Most assuredly did die. Now we know. Th- we, we I'm, I'm going to suggest that we know this because people, in wrapping his body, they held him. Now you might remember reading the notes here. When a body is dead, the blood coagulates closest to the ground and leaves bruising. They would have seen bruising on his back. If he was just in a coma, the heart is still beating though very slowly, and that would not happen. There were clear rigor mortis sets in. Jesus' body, within a certain short amount of time, became rigid. Makes it a lot easier to carry a corpse, too, by the way. They would have observed this stuff. And if his body was still very flexible, they would say, wait a second, guys, something's wrong here. Maybe we should not put all these 75 pounds of spice and bury our Messiah, okay? Maybe he's not dead. We also have another problem. The soldiers at the cross, they're trained executioners. If they got it wrong, ever, they would be put to death. They were trained in killing. We're also told that a spear went through his side. And what came out? Do you guys remember? Water, water and blood. Okay, that is a scientific term that I can't remember the name of. But that's what happens when a person dies and water forms around the heart. So when it pierces the, I'm sorry? Yes. so when the sword pierced the heart, not just blood, but water as well came out. So that too would be a clear sign of death. So all of these things would convince us that he truly did die. How on earth could Jesus have swooned fainted on the cross with 39 lashes nails through his wrist and feet suffocating but not quite revive and push the stone away they they were of such size that you would not be able to do it by one person that's why the women several women said who's going to move the stone for us because it was too heavy for them but jesus all right, revived in the tomb, and he was able to do it all by himself. Right. And then he apparently came out, walked for however many miles, seven to Emmaus and back. Wasn't something with the ropes? Yeah, the yeah, they were. Okay, that's the movie. But okay, yes, that that that's the movie. Uh, great movie, by the way, Risen. If you haven't seen it, see it. Question, comment. Okay. It's could the like so I would have a hard time believing. Well this comes from people who believe that Jesus did not do miracles because miracles can't happen. They're trying to explain their suggesting, why did Jesus supposedly rise from the dead? It's because he never died in the first place. No miracle needed here. Jesus fainted on the cross woke up in the tomb pushed the stone away and had so much energy he and, and his wounds by the way were fairly well healed in a matter of what two days three days and he was able to convince his disciples that he had been raised from the dead what about the soldiers guarding them? And then you have soldiers guarding the tomb there's many facts that contradict this succession oh this suggestion so let's cross that one out. We've got a couple more to go and we're running out of time. Number two, the disciples lied about the resurrection. What kind of problems are, do we find with this? Okay, so the, this resurrection changed their lives, but they're liars. How would they a believe a place. lie and why would that change their lives so radically? disciples at the time. It'd be hard for 11 people. It's hard for 2 people to agree on something. Good. Much harder for 11 people to agree on such a huge lie. And they the same story they all have the same story Okay. All right. Good. Then uh, uh, Peter Mm. Not let anything leak out. Also, if they did lie, they didn't like keep thinking about it. But understand, all of them died except John, and he almost died. Tradition says they tried to boil him in about a boiling oil, <laughs> and he wouldn't die, so he got exiled. But all of them died a martyr's death, except John, who was exiled. And none of them cracked under pressure. Come on. What's the big deal? Let's see. Do I recant my lie and live or do I die for this lie that I've been propagating for however many years? I mean, really? Why would you die for a lie? Something you knew was a lie. Why would you do that? But apparently, according to this theory, that's what they did. There, There was no motive for this what fame and fortune forget about that what did they get instead lots of suffering and persecution not the ideal dreamy life no reason for them to then and maybe this is what you were thinking of peter but they were the most upstanding moral men and their whole life was predicated upon this lie of the resurrection everywhere they went they went to proclaim what jesus resurrection and it was a lie and not one of them ever cracked not one of nobody included the enemies got word of this we don't find in any of the enemies of christianity where they heard the real story was the disciples like not a consideration it's only in recent years that we're thinking about this okay i need to move on sorry um disciples were delusional they were delusional that's now that have a lot of gaps yes so i was going to say that many people having all the same delusion in different places okay nearly the same time the tune it does not account for the tune being empty okay this is true that's a this is a good point now here's and and he he does bring this up but understand that most people who will adopt uh, one of these theories they also adopt others so they will say like john crosson with the jesus seminar very very liberal guy they've been on tv especially 10 20 years ago when it was the Sem- jesus seminar was so big um you know pbs special john crosson leading the uh, wow but john Crossan believes that jesus was crucified but then he was thrown in a, a borrowed tomb in in, a, in the ground barely covered and the dogs ate him and so when they went looking for him, they couldn't find him. Okay? Yeah, they would have found... No possible way of doing DNA testing. But the disciples were mistaken, thought that he had been buried. Okay? Then we're going to come into this one that I'm right after this, we're going to touch on legend. Okay? And we'll probably have to conclude with that one and not touch on all of these. But... Um, so there's some serious problem with John Crossan's suggestion that Jesus was just thrown into the ground. Like many, How many of you in, ha, saw the movie Risen? Okay, And <laughs> do you remember when they were looking for Jesus' body, where did they start looking? When, uh, uh, the gross pit of dead people. Yeah, because that, the, when when, the thieves were considered poor and they would generally throw them into these pits outside the city. Okay, so maybe that's what happened with Jesus. Maybe someone stole his body and threw it out there. with well, John Crossan says, well, no, actually, he was never buried in a tomb. That's what they did right away. They only thought that they put him in a tomb. It, what was it, someone else? Did, did someone come and switch Jesus' body? I mean, he, all of the records, including the enemy's records, say nothing about this. This is a modern invention that is, that Jesus' body was only buried in a shallow grave and eaten by dogs. That's, no one ever came up with that idea. Not until most recently. John Crossan leading, leading the way in this. And that's why the tomb is empty. So what I'm saying is people will pull together a couple of theories to explain these four facts, not just one. Okay? So, so the delusion. Um, you guys are familiar with the Navy SEALs, right? The Navy SEALs are tested in so many different, they drown you and kill you like five times so that you stop breathing and then they resuscitate you because you have to get rid of the fear of death. Um, so this is how they do it. I'm not sure, I'm not sure that would get rid of the fear of death for me, but one thing that they do though is, is they put them out to sea and let them float for five days. No food. Is it five days or three days? But anyway, I think it's no food and no water. It's very hard to sleep at all. You eventually get delusional. They all report delusions. But here's the thing. Never ever have have two people who hallucinated the same thing. As they've done studies just in hallucinations, which are this concept of delusions, two people, they don't dream the same dream. They don't hallucinate the same thing. There's no such thing as a group hallucination, okay? If there is a group hallucination, then it is because someone is suggesting something and others then believe it, um, like hypnosis or something along these lines. Um, but those have some factors involved in the leader's ability, number one, to be believed and to suggest so that people believe it. But this is more than that because the disciples all said they saw Jesus too. They saw him. Okay? This concept of groupthink, it cannot apply in this. When you, when you talk about groupthink in the scientific field and then you try to apply it, it doesn't work. All right? Groupthink, it's an, Groupthink is an impossibility to be applied to this. That is one of the theories out there. Legend. I'm going to need to conclude with this one. Some people have suggested, well, the, the Gospels were written so far later than the actual events, there was enough time for legend to creep in. Now, when this theory was first put forward, some believed before the 17th, 18th century, but when this theory was first put forward, the liberal theologians believed that the Gospels were written in the 2nd century, including the Book of Acts. They weren't written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were written by pseudonyms, people who assumed those names, but they that was, it was not Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It was a second- or third-generation person writing the gospel in Matthew's honor, in Mark's honor, in Luke's honor, in John's honor. So it was done credibly, or to honor them, but it wasn't written by these guys. However, because of what Sir William um, Ramsey said, Uh, discovered in archaeology. I don't know if you have... Anyway, um, he's got a couple of books and discovered... There's so much discovery that he had with regard to proving Acts and Luke being one of the most historically reliable books in history. And he says, as a historical book, Acts and the Gospel according to Luke, Luke... Is among the top. That's his personal conclusion. And that's almost a verbatim quote. Um, so what that did was that axed any suggestion that the gospels were written in the second century, so liberals are forced to move them into the first century. As late as, as early as 70 AD. So Jesus died, rose from the dead around 30 A.D., so it's 40 years later. So the liberals still today along with the skeptics and atheists, say that's 40 years is still enough time for legend to creep in. However, number one, those who study legend say legend will not develop until the second or third generation following an event. And they give many examples, okay? Alexander the Great and so on. Second or third generation. Why? Because of eyewitnesses eyewitness accounts and eyewitness accounts if i witnessed the parting of the red sea i'm going to make sure that all of my kids know it if i'm a 20 year old man when i see it i get married i have kids i'm going to tell them and all of everybody of that generation is going to tell them and legend is not going to develop until the third generation so you're looking at about a hundred years which by the way is the time when the gnostic gospels were written in the second century they are filled with legend but here's the thing that you can look at in first corinthians 15 and i'm out of time but first corinthians 15 we find a creed these things that were past these things that i received i now pass on to you okay and he says and it's it he writes it just like you would read a creed or say a creed jesus Died on the third day, raised to li- or, or, or died, raised to life on the third day, um, according to the scriptures. He was seen by many men. He was seen by the apostles, seen by James. And then he concludes, and seen by me, the least of all apostles. And we realize, even skeptics recognize, this is a creed. 1 Corinthians 15 was written about 55 A.D., if Paul is including a creed in that, and he received it at some point, that means he received it when he was in Jerusalem, which would be closer to about 48 to 50 A.D. Now we're looking at about 18 years removed. But when he received it, it had to have been written down, it had to have been, or orally, you know, spoken orally, And so it would take time for something to become a tradition. Here's the conclusion, and even skeptics will agree with this. That creed was probably written anywhere between two and eight years after Christ died and rose from the dead. This is is the conclusion you can come to. That creed is exactly what the Gospels are based on that Jesus rose from the dead, that the apostles truly saw him with their own eyes. And he said, and 500 at one time. And if you don't believe me, many of them are still alive and you can still talk to them about it. Okay. And so now we have the belief of a church and eight years. That's it. Just eight years maximally for them to have put forth this creed. And it matches the Gospels. It speaks of a resurrection. And there's absolutely no opportunity for legend to have developed. Okay? Now, we're going to be getting into more of this stuff and looking at it because the skeptics were going to come at us from a number of different directions. Well, what about this and what about this? And the evidence for the resurrection is so huge, church, that... The, I remember when William Lane Craig was debating um, Christopher Hitchens, a well-known atheist, and Hitchens said, basically concluded, I can't believe it because it's supernatural. I can't believe it because it's supernatural. Because Craig was asking him, how much evidence do you need? I just need more. I just need more. And the bottom line is you can never give the atheist enough evidence. So, what needs to change is their heart. So, I'm, I'm going to encourage you. Um, understand this stuff that we go through. Learn the concept of of, of abductive reasoning, making inferences based on the most uh, or based conclusions the the most logical conclusion based on the evidence that is given. The most logical conclusion of all of this evidence is clearly heads head and shoulders above any other suggestion is that jesus truly did rise from the dead and the only reason why someone will not believe that given the evidence is because they would say well these principles that detectives use just don't apply to the resurrection because it's a miracle and we can't believe in miracles let me close in prayer Father, I want to thank you for the resurrection. I want to thank you for the power of that resurrection. Father, it's not just a fact. It is a truth, and it transformed the disciples' lives. And I am asking God for every single person in this room, allow it to transform our lives, that God, we too would be willing to testify about it, even if it meant death. That is how firmly we are committed, not to just that fact, but to the person of Jesus. Jesus, we love you. You are amazing. Continue to teach us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.